The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, Apple set to launch the iPhone 15 this week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking ahead to the crucial ECB interest rate decision. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at upcoming data in China and what might serve as a catalyst for a market recovery. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where the House is returning from its August recess and racing to avoid a government shutdown. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with Apple and its new product unveiling next week, which risks being overshadowed by a growing government iPhone ban in China, Apple's largest market outside the U.S. Now, for all things Apple, we're joined by Bloomberg Technology co-host Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Wow, what a week. Ooh, yeah. Now, before we talk about the upcoming iPhone 15 and Apple Watch upgrades, let's start with last week and what happened with the iPhone in China, what that did to Apple shares this past week on Wall Street. I mean, the reality is that the news was so significant that on Wednesday and Thursday across two sessions, Apple lost almost $200 billion of market cap, which for Apple, that just doesn't happen. You know, it's, it's kind of this steady ship. Uh, technology giant, but the news is is kind of a seesaw of things. The, the headline is that, according to Bloomberg sources, China's government is telling other government agencies and state-backed corporations that their staff cannot use iPhone and they cannot use handsets from other non-Chinese handset makers. And what that looks like, you know, is. Uh, similar to what we saw a year ago, actually, in May of 2022, when the Chinese government said a similar thing about personal computers or PCs. They basically said, you have two years to transition from a foreign brand to a Chinese brand, and you have to use a uh, a, a Chinese PC. And they're now replicating that playbook with smartphones. So is this like an opening salvo by Beijing and a crackdown on all U.S. technology? Also, it comes at the same time a new Huawei phone comes out. Yes. So I would note that there are several cell site analysts that point out, despite the headline and all of the news reports, it's likely that the Chinese government, as a matter of policy, you know, has been telling government workers, agencies, and state-backed corporations for some time, like, hey, come on, let's be using Chinese brands, not not our own brands, domestic brands, not not a foreign or international brand. 
Um, so it's hard to gauge like what kind of impact that would have. Next week, and I know we'll get into it, is the launch of the iPhone 15. And this is kind of the most substantive and significant technology upgrade uh, to the iPhone handset for some time. But go back to the Chinese consumer. China, greater China, is about 20% of Apple's revenues. And in the quarter just gone, the June quarter, Apple actually grew in China 8%, whereas overall sales declined. So if you're a consumer in China and your government is telling you like, hey, if you work for the government or a government agency or a state-backed corporation, we don't want you using iPhone. And then Apple brings out a new iPhone. What are you going to do? And, and that is the part that the market and the analysts and the, all of us tech journalists are finding hard to quantify like what the impact will be. And you're absolutely right. The surprise of last week was Huawei that's been out of the, the handset game for a little while, bringing to market a mysterious new smartphone, <laughs> um, which we literally lifted the lid on. Now, this Mate 60 Pro, 5G capable, updated, it sounds like they are really pushing this to take the place of all those Apple products. Yeah, so we, I talked about that tit for tat in the geopolitics. The Commerce uh, Secretary, Gina Raimondo, was in China week before this, right, last week. And time to that, this mysterious phone hits the market. And it's mysterious because it's not registered. The specs are not registered with the China regulator, which is highly unusual. It, on paper, is is competitive with with the leading smartphones what bloomberg did is we actually got hold of one because it sold out within hours and we took it to a specialist tech insights and they tore the thing apart and what they discovered is yes okay it's it's more technologically advanced than we thought china was capable of it has a seven nanometer processor but that is still two generations behind the cutting edge of chip making but it raised all these alarm bells about whether china is breaching sanctions that the u.s currently has in place but the point as it relates to Apple is, well, hold on, this has come out of nowhere. Could Huawei take some market share from Apple at the same time that the government is cracking down on, on products like the iPhone? And so that was part of the nervousness in the market and one reason that Apple shares fell. Oh, boy, did they fall. Now, some analysts, though, uh, I mean, J.P. Morgan Chase says this is bad, not, uh, you know, the high valuation for the company and the risks with this band. But some, like Dan Ives at Wedbush Security, saying... This ban is really nothing to worry about. Let's hear what he said to Bloomberg this, just on Friday. In my opinion, bark's a lot worse than a bite. I mean, there's essentially been a pseudo ban of government employees for, for Apple in terms of iPhones the last two years. Now, maybe there was a little more restrictions here, but we're still talking about what we believe is 500,000 iPhones max relative to what we believe is going to be 45 million sold in China in the next year. And, and let's face it, Ed, Apple still valued at around $2.8 trillion, the most valuable, valuable publicly traded company in the U.S. So there's two things here. Whether the bark is worse than its bite in, in, in the context of China's government and its, its attitude towards Apple, we don't know. You know, Dan talked about the sort of unit volume that could be impacted. Think about it a slightly different way. Think about how it might impact the broad suite of Apple products. The iPhone is still everything for Apple. But if you're a consumer, and again, you know that your government is saying, hey, we don't want you using iPhone in the context of a government agency or a state-backed corporation, do you then hold off on buying an Apple Watch or a MacBook or using other Apple products? So that's the unquantifiable side of it. I'll tell you what we know, and the data is really important, that the June quarter was a record for Apple in greater China. And what Tim Cook said was responsible for that was what he called switches. Switches are consumers that are buying an iPhone for the first time 
or they're switching from another handset maker to iPhone. Maybe they've had one in the past, but they're, they're switches. And so what we concluded from that was China was growing because people were moving to iPhone. And this story in literally the last week or so has changed that narrative. And as Dan kind of pointed out, we don't know the number of handsets you can, you can try to calculate, but it's going to be interesting to see how the Chinese consumer reacts. Let's face it, we have a few months here before the holidays. We have these new products coming out. It could really change things. Let's talk about what is happening at Apple headquarters this coming Tuesday. What are you expecting to see in these new products? Yeah, we're excited to be down in Cupertino, Apple HQ. The event is called Wonderlust. We actually don't have a really clear handle on why, but this is the biggest event of the year, and it's all about the iPhone 15. And like Apple has done with prior generations, there will be four individual sub-models of the 15 generation. Two base models, iPhone 15 and iPhone 15 Plus, a plus-size version, 6.7-inch screen, and then the Pro models. And the Pro model is everything. It's so important. Higher average selling price. Uh, Consumers tend to favor those kind of very tech-heavy, substantive upgrades. And, you know, with the Pro, you will get an iPhone 15 Pro and an iPhone 15 Pro Max, all according to Bloomberg's reporting. And in particular, I shout out my good friend and colleague, Mark Gurman, because he always scoops this stuff ahead of time. And there are two key things about the iPhone on the Pro side, the Pro and Pro Max. Higher spec materials. We're going to have titanium around the edges uh, instead of aluminum or stainless steel. So a higher quality but lighter weight product, a slightly wider screen. They're called bezels, the sort of edge of the phone. The screen will stretch further. But then I, I'm, a, I'm a geek, right? I love the compute. I love the processors. So look out for what they talk about, the proprietary silicon. And again, what drives upgrades in the smartphone market? It's real cutting-edge tech. In this generation of iPhone 15 Pro, we expect Apple's own A17 processor, the latest processor they do, built on 3 nanometer uh, technology. Um, that will give it faster processing. It will give a greater um, memory bandwidth in conjunction with the memory chips. Um, but also, uh, we're looking at the next generation of RF or radio frequency chip as well, the U2, across all of them, Pro and the base model 15s. That will give it just better connectivity uh, and uh in short and medium range, uh, which if you you know you care about those things, right? Um, and beyond that, uh, some some uh, OS and functionality update as well. Uh, also, a refreshed Apple Watch, AirPods. There may be news there. Yeah, so the AirPods are kind of getting a slight refresh. I, I think the big thing we missed on iPhone, and I, I apologize, I should have got to it sooner, but is that it, we're going to go back to US, or we're going to USB-C charging. So everyone out there that's sort of insanely furious like I about how many different chargers you have to use every day. Apple is moving the iPhone to USB-C, um, which is substantive, right? It's going from 30 pin to uh, uh, lightning to now USB-C. And the, iP- the AirPods will also get that USB-C update. And that's pretty much it beyond the software of the AirPods. And then very modest changes to Apple Watch. Um, two updated lines, Series 9, 41 millimeter, 45 millimeter, and then a second generation Ultra 49 millimeter in size. So it's slight tweaks, but the real updates are in the iPhone. Well, there is a lot to look forward to, Ed. And be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Technology weekdays at noon on Bloomberg Television. And Ed is going to be in Cupertino at Apple headquarters this Tuesday, following all the action on Bloomberg TV. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Europe and preview the upcoming ECB decision. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. The Capital. 
Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York, and up later in our program, a look at the market recovery in China. But first, the European Central Bank meets in the coming days where policymakers will decide whether or not to prolong the most aggressive bout of monetary tightening in its history. Investors are split on whether or not the ECB will pause as the latest data show the pace of price increases are slowing along with a downturn in the services sector. For more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor, Caroline Hepker. Tom, to pause or not to pause is the question that ECB policymakers will be mulling in the run-up to Thursday's rate decision. A chorus of governing council members have, in recent days, been reiterating their desire to hike interest rates another quarter point to bring down inflation in Europe. But there are others who are worried that the effects of the last nine hikes are starting to take their toll on the economy. While economic growth remains resilient in the second quarter in the 20-member euro area, the latest PMI surveys have shown the services sector following manufacturing into a downturn. I've been discussing this with Bloomberg's ECB reporter Jana Randau and our senior euro area economist David Powell. I started by talking to Jana about her expectations, uh, having spoken to the Dutch central bank governor Klaas Knott, who told Bloomberg that in Investors betting against a rate hike may be underestimating the likelihood of it happening. Well, I think he actually describes uh, the the controversy or or the the challenges rather well. Um, he didn't say uh, rates will rise, nor did he say rates will be on hold. Um, reading between the lines, um, I sensed a slight preference for another hike, but but he was very clear in saying. It is complicated, right? Um, the uh, inflation outlook uh, uh, proves to be disappointing. It's sticky. Um, it's not coming down as quickly as they want. At the same time, um, economic surveys point to, to a very quick deterioration in the economic outlook. Um, hard data so far, he said, um, aren't quite showing that yet, Um the second quarter GDP figures were uh, actually rather promising. The labor market is holding up. The housing market seems to have bottomed out. 
Um, so, so a very, very tricky situation. And uh, we've heard, of course, from from policymakers from from across the spectrum. We've had uh, the very hawkish people, um, the Slovak uh, central bank governor, um, speaking uh, about uh, the need for one more hike, and preferably, uh, preferably uh, in September. Um, we've mm. heard from uh, Mario Centeno, the, the Portuguese, uh, saying downside risks are materializing. So the spectrum is rather wide um, and, and it's very difficult. But I think Knott's view of, of ever so slightly preferring um, a move in September, that is um, where I would put my money. Okay, reading between the lines then of the ECB officials, David, inflation has been slowing in the euro area, but the economy is slowing down too. How difficult a balancing act is uh, the ECB facing? Well, the ECB's primary focus, in fact, only focus really is inflation, unlike the Federal Reserve. So it's going to be it's going to look at that um, most. Um, and as Jana said, uh, inflation remains very high. Um, in fact, it is higher than they forecast um, when they last released their forecasts in June. Um, and also inflation expectations are very high, despite the slowdown in the economy. Um, so we think they're going to hike again um, in, in September. Um, and uh, as Jana also highlighted, the uh, some of the hawkish members have, have been speaking about that uh, that preference for a hike in September, and they probably know the window of opportunity will soon close to get a last hike in. Um, it's clear that the economy is facing a period of significant weakness, and that's probably going to get worse in the second half of this year. There's not only the surveys, there's more forward-looking indicators like the ECB's bank lending survey and data on credit that show um, the picture uh, is, is getting worse. So um, they'll probably try to push this through now because it may be the last opportunity to do so. Yeah, okay. Iana, how divided do you think that the council will be, though, on this decision? I would say the the times when when everybody agrees easily and, and is very happy with the outcome, those times are over. Um, do I expect a big, big fight? Probably not. Um, but but you do see different opinions um, uh, emerging and and very much along the hawkish and dovish lines you would you would expect with uh, those uh, in the dovish camp really looking at the economy, at the risks, at um, at how demand is slowing, how um, the slowdown in China is affecting manufacturing, which if you believe the, P, uh, the PMI is, um, is really, really doing poorly. And, and of course, now that weakness is spilling into services to some extent. Mm. So the, the, the eyes of the doves uh, are really on those indicators, whereas the hawks do pay um, attention to, um, to inflation expectations a little more uh, to, to the risk that, um, that uh, there, is, there is still upside risk to the inflation outlook. So I think okay. um, by the end of it, we will come out with an agreement, with, with a consensus, um, but it will be very difficult to, um, to communicate and accommodate all those views and all those concerns. So I, I would say, you know, a, a little bit more politics, if you want, uh, is, is what it takes <laughs> from from the president, from Christine Lagarde, in, in brokering that consensus. It won't be as easy um, because the, the, the path forward is not as obvious as it used to be. David, do you think that the divergence, you say this may, may be, you know, the last sort of chance of the central bank in Europe to raise rates, the divergence, is that going to be an issue for the euro? What happens if the ECB pauses? 
Well, <clears throat> the Federal Reserve uh, is probably done hiking, and that will also give the ECB another reason um, to think about whether they want to um, continue hiking. Um, so they don't they don't have to worry about um, a huge surge in the euro um, if they were to if they were to kind of uh, continue hiking. Um, although there probably would be a reaction in the market because right now the market is not expecting a hike um, in September. Uh, there's only about a twenty percent probability of that priced in. So um, the immediate market reaction would probably be a higher euro, um, but it wouldn't be the start of some kind of very long trend uh, of divergence. Uh and just in terms of the outlook uh, economically for Europe, you know, as we go into the end of this year, more importantly, our view on the economic performance next year. Um, next year will be will will will, will be, be a difficult year. We have all of these uh, problems that the euro area is facing, and not only the euro area but the rest of the uh, Western world, the United States, the United Kingdom, um, in terms of tighter monetary policy and the full impact of that finally being felt. There is a long lag that comes with raising interest rates, um, so the, the 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 pain will be more obvious toward the end of this year and into next year. David. Okay, very interesting. Um, Jana, in terms of the ECB's inflation expectations survey, it showed that consumers um, see inflation at 3.4% over the next 12 months. How much of a problem is it, you know, that this is, uh, is how embedded are inflation expectations becoming for consumers and businesses? Yeah, I mean, the the rate um, or the expectations for the next year, you would expect that to to still be high, um, just because um, inflation is still high, and and um, even official forecasts don't see it coming back to two percent uh, over the next twelve months. So, so the ECB will will look at the trajectory and and see how uh, how that measure has actually come down, and it has done, come down quite a bit. What's slightly more interesting is the is the three year horizon. And there, uh, we, we've seen that number, um, up and down over the past months, but the last move was, was up slightly. So, so, uh, consumers slightly raised their expectations for inflation in, in three years. And that rate also still is quite significantly above 2%. That was Bloomberg's ECB reporter Jana Randau and our senior Euro area economist David Powell from Bloomberg Economics. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, China's economy. Is it slumping toward a rebound. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Ahead of a slew of Chinese economic data coming out next week, we take a look at that country's lackluster economic recovery. Will the fading economic momentum endanger China's growth target this year? For more, let's get to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host, Brian Curtis. Tom, China's growth is slowing. The renminbi is weakening. Imports and exports are slower. Prices are falling and youth unemployment is running above 20%. And in the coming week, we're expecting more data on retail sales, factory output, and fixed asset investment. And few are expecting any kind of dramatic turnaround in that set. Looming above all of this as well is the property crisis. We caught up with Bloomberg columnist John Authors, who said as bad as things are now, they could be a lot worse. The concerns for China or the worries about Chinese growth aren't having as big an effect on the rest of the world as they used to. This, this looks like a much more serious situation for China than 2015 when you know, a badly handled Chinese devaluation really did lead to a you know, minor crisis that got very scary. So to take a look at how investors are responding to this weakness in the Chinese economy, uh, joining me is Tu Lianting, Bloomberg's managing editor for Asia Stocks. Lianting, some might argue that it is worse now, uh, that China seems to be in a kind of secular and cyclical decline. What are you hearing from investors? A bit of a mixed views. I think the predominant view is that people are bearish, uh, and that is backed by data, the latest data that we saw from northbound uh, flows into China, as well as um, the prime brokers from Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. They've all shown that uh, long-only investors and also hedge funds globally have been pulling money out of China, and their positioning uh, actually has lowered uh, to um, the level just before the pandemic. Uh, so that's a pretty dismal sort of picture right now. But on the other side, we are also seeing an emergence of, of investors who are actually ready to have a bit of a tactical uh, move into the Chinese equities because uh, we did see it's not quite bazooka, but some heavy measures uh, from the Chinese government to support the housing sector. And there is some concrete um, evidence that people are actually lining up, at least in mega cities like Beijing and Shanghai, to buy homes. And that's sort of like the first concrete thing or evidence that we are seeing from all these stimulus measures for the housing sector that people are actually reacting to it. And, uh, you know, and some of them would just be speculation, as we saw in um, the, you know, some of the property uh, names on um, on Wednesday, uh, the likes of Evergrande and Sunak and Shimao yeah. and these. Yeah, we were saw those big uh, gains. Uh, you know, something like uh, two, uh, sixty-five to eighty-three percent, and everything. 
so you mentioned those measures about property. What specifically are investors looking for in terms of a catalyst that might spark a broader market recovery? Yeah, I think it all comes down to reviving demand from home buyers, right? And so far, basically, people were disappointed because whatever the government was trying to do, demand is not coming back. We saw a few months of housing sales slump uh, from official data, but now we are actually seeing some kind of demand coming, and it may not be quite animal spirit as of yet, but that's probably the initial signs of some kind of warming up. Up or revival of the market, and that if can that can continue, and that will show up in the September data, and that would really be the catalyst that people are looking for. And again, it should not just show show up in one month's data; it would, would have to kind of last as well for people to actually gauge how much demand, pent up demand, there actually is among home buyers in China. In that furious rally that we saw after some of those measures, particularly that story in the Securities Times about more coming, uh, we basically saw a lot of the developers that had been hit the hardest rebound sharply, but not so much for some of the steadier hands like China Overseas and China Resources Land. Uh, is it the case that uh, for those brave souls, they're just looking to to make a quick buck on a quick recovery? Yeah, so far that is a sense that we are getting by talking to the market participants. Yeah, these uh, d- distressed names such as Evergrande and Sunak and Shimao, their stock valuations are really, really low. They've all become penny stocks, and even with yesterday's rally, bear in mind most of them still saw their stock prices drop more than seventy percent in the last couple of years. Yes. Um, and I think for hedge funds, it's difficult to get into the distressed debt space because. Of the lack of liquidity, and and of course in the stock market there is still plenty of liquidity for them to take a punt at something that they think may actually generate you know double or triple digit return in a, a short period of time. Outside of hedge funds who are quite opportunistic and looking for some quick gains, for asset managers and and bigger investors、uh, to take a look at China, will they need to see domestic investors、uh, get bullish first, or would they? Dare to get out in front. Yeah, they're not coming back. I think that's just the fact、mm. <laughs> from everyone that we're talking to.、Uh, uh, all those major、uh, loan-only mutual funds, especially global ones, very,、yeah. very few have said that they have the appetite to add China weight.、Um, the only exception I would say is GQG. They did say to us、um, a few weeks ago that they are actually quite bullish on China tech stocks, and then their timing, I think, was quite、uh, opportunistic. June,、uh, because since、uh, they said it, the tech stocks actually added about eight percent in value. We are still getting state media stories about tighter regulations in various industries. Will this spook investors once again? I think there is a difference between this wave of、uh, sort of tightening in regulation versus what we saw in the tech crackdown、uh, a year ago or two years ago.、Uh, right now, it's really targeted at、uh, sort of maintaining the fact that children will actually have, you know, they won't be addicted, and parents can set、um, can be comfortable、uh, with their kids using technology. So that is really catering to the needs of the citizens. 
and their well-being. So I would say that's slightly different from the kind of unpredictable crackdowns on all kinds of sectors a few years ago. And also uh, from markets perspective, the latest uh, uh, tightening in the gaming addiction actually didn't have any impact at all. So all that I think overall has been priced in. And uh, the broader view among investors about the tech regulation or the broader regulation is that China actually wants to support the domestic uh, tech giants right now. And uh, the main reason for that is to create jobs, because as you know, the youth unemployment is at their all-time high right now. Yeah, and it was the tech giants that were most appealing to a lot of Western investors uh, in the past. Let's go back to John Authors, because one of the things he was concerned about was whether or not the turmoil that we've seen in the China markets was spreading outward. Let's hear again from our columnist, John Authors. The fact that a lot of Western investors had already uh, abandoned their direct exposure to China, I emphasize direct because everybody has a lot of indirect exposures as well. That fact has something to do with why why it hasn't really impeded other global markets. Is that another shoe to drop, though, to Lianting, that perhaps uh, this would spread outward from China, this kind of market turmoil? I would say most of the people that we spoke to um, have said that they see limited impact um, mm. from China's slowdown uh, to major Western economies like the U.S. Uh, and Europe, uh, especially in the U.S. I think overall, U.S. and U- China has been decoupling. And as you saw in the latest uh, U.S. export data, I think, uh, or import data, I should say, China accounted for, I think, a much smaller portion than it accounted for in 2018. And also, there is a bit of a decoupling uh, between the two two nations' banking system as well. So from both the, you know, export link and the banking link, um, there is actually not a huge amount of China influence or, you know, U.S. exposure to China that investors are really worried about right now. Lian Ting, thanks so much for joining us. To Lian Ting, Bloomberg's Managing Editor for Asia Stocks. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thanks, Brian. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to the nation's capital for a look at the biggest political stories in the upcoming week. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. The House reconvenes this week, and top of the agenda is an impending government shutdown. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. That's right, Tom. They're coming back. The House of Representatives, that is. After a long August recess, which still wasn't short of drama, congressmen and women will be returning to Capitol Hill next week. But they'll come back into session this coming Tuesday with a big deadline looming on the horizon. A clock is ticking quite loudly, trying to avert a government shutdown before funding runs out on September 30th. Joining us now with more of a preview is Mike Dorning, Bloomberg News Deputy Congressional Editor. So, Mike, first of all, let's just talk about the clock. There's, what, 11 legislative days between when they come back and when that deadline is? That's about right. Um, They have until September 30th, um, and then the government funding runs out. So the government will shut down October 1st if they can't agree to something. 
So that's if they can't pass all 12 appropriations bills that they need to, or if they are unable to pass a continuing resolution, basically just punt, kick it down the road, it being the can. If it's a continuing resolution that they want to pursue, what questions are there around that? Well, one of the key questions is whether they can get enough of the House conservatives to agree to a continuing resolution that Speaker McCarthy is willing to put it on the floor. They can easily get something like that passed through the Senate. The Republican leader in the Senate has already said he's for it. Um, It's in the House where, although there's plenty of votes for it, it's a question of how much Speaker McCarthy is willing to anger the conservatives. And then it's a question of like what will be in the continuing resolution and what won't. That could be a key issue. Well, and one of those issues is in regard to Ukraine funding. And this is where there seems to be a lot of daylight, even between Republicans, as you say, in the House and then in the Senate. Can you walk us through that issue in particular and where especially those on the far right end of of Republicans in the House are on this? Absolutely. Traditionally, um, Republicans have been very strong on defense, and that's what where the Senate Republicans are coming from, that old Reagan-esque um, project American military power. In the House, on the far right, there's a lot of unease with the American support for Ukraine. And um, there, there's opposition to sending more money to Ukraine. And House Speaker McCarthy is supposed to the idea of stripping that out and separately having a bill that would require Biden to meet demands on border enforcement and changes in asylum policy and other immigration issues if they're going to give more money to Ukraine. So all of this to say, it's going to be really complicated threading this needle, trying to get enough support even for a CR, let alone an actual spending package uh, at the end of the day. So at the moment, how likely does a government shutdown seem? Certainly looking like a bigger risk because there are these problems, there's these fights, this idea that McCarthy has raised to tie Ukraine aid to border enforcement policy all make a shutdown more likely. That said, in Congress, a lot of times all this gets resolved at the last minute. So we really won't know for sure until a day or two before the shutdown how likely it is. So waiting until the clock is at like 11.58 before it strikes midnight. Yeah, or at least, um, you know, maybe the same day is often the case before you know what's going on. Now here, one likely scenario is they just punt the issue down the road four, six, eight, ten weeks. So if that happens, the whole drama begins again. I'm sensing a theme here. Mike Dorning, <laughs> Bloomberg News Deputy yeah, Congressional like Editor. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much. And Tom... Get ready for the shutdown showdown. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. 
This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.